Here uh, that we feel so blessed to know that, that Tim and Pastor Sion met on an online fishing forum. I think Tim bought something from you, and Tim drives over. I'm buying something off a guy in Keller, and he drives and comes back, and he's like, "You won't believe that was amazing, a God appointment." And they met during 2020, and they've struck this friendship up. But I want to tell you a little bit about him. He's been in ministry and in, in pastoring for over 30 years at Gateway Church, serving there, uh, executive pastor, executive pastor, worship team, camp pastor, teaching pastor, so much wisdom, so much knowledge, so much leadership. Today, you better get ready to amen and take some notes because the gold is coming. Please welcome Pastor Sion Offer to the stage today. It's good to be here. Good to be here. Uh, thank you, Pastor Kerry. I'm uh, I, I love your pastors. You have some great, great pastors. Now, if the devil can't take him from you, he'll make you take it for granted. And uh, you have some great pastors. It's great. Uh, we did meet. Uh, we, we fished together. We have a good time. And he's been telling me all about you and how awesome you guys are, what a wonderful church this is. This is and this is our first time here. And we're experiencing uh, GM for the very first time. And we love this place. You guys are amazing. And uh, I, my greetings from Gateway Church. We're right down the street, but we're one kingdom. Amen? Amen. And uh, we are expanding the kingdom of God with you. And it's, it is absolutely an honor to be here. I want to introduce to you my lovely wife, Shannon. You'll stand up. We've been married 30 years in a row. And so we're, we got, we, we're going to keep the streak alive. And uh, we just got through with a marriage conference at Gateway and got our tune up, went and got the oil changed in our marriage, and we're, we're ready to go another 30 years, and then we'll, get a, we'll go to another conference then, okay? Is that good? No. But we, we have eight children, and then uh, most of them not on purpose. Um, <laughs> And we have eight kids, and uh, we, we, somebody said, man, you must like kids. I was like, no, I love my wife. <laughs> Let's get this straight. And um, I'm, just, I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I, I would say I do love my wife. I'm not kidding about that. But uh, five of the kids we did adopt, and uh, there's a story about that. My wife wrote a book about it called Eight is Enough because uh, it truly is. Enough, uh, and the story, this goes into the story and how Romans chapter 12 fits into that as a lifestyle of worship. You'd love to have that book. Also, I'm going to be teaching out of this book today called Divine Detours, When God Messes Up Your Plans, which is about 99.9% .9 of the time. God does mess up our plans. So these books are going to be in the back, and what we've done is I've just, we brought two crates, and I don't want to take any of them home. Uh, but what we wanted to do was bless Genesis Metro uh, with the, the, every penny of it. So we, we're donating the books. You buy a book, you're actually helping the building fund at El Dorado. How's that sound? So it's just another way to help. So just buy a bunch of those books back there. You know, buy one for yourself. Get one for your enemy and, and just give it to them. Be a blessing to them. Um, and th those are our books back there. Thank you, Shannon. And uh, so I'm going to jump right into the message because it's two and a half hours, and they said that was a little long. But I want to jump right in it today because I, I, I sense in my, my heart there's a, lot of, there's a lot of destiny in here. You know, what you're doing down on El Dorado is not just building a building. You're, you're driving a stake into the ground 
and you're telling enemy forces, spiritual forces of evil, that GM is here and the kingdom of God has come. Okay, and, and it's, how many of you would agree that it's been a process? It's been a journey, and the journey's not over, and you're still walking between when God said build it and when it's fulfilled, there's a, there's a walk that you have to walk. There's a process, and that dream being fulfilled is a promised land. Okay? Matter of fact, I'm going to draw that for you if I could. If you think about it like this, uh, um, I'm a picture guy, so I like drawing pictures and stuff, so prepare to be dazzled. Okay? <laughs> but here's that dream. This is the dream fulfilled, whether it's that building. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's something else going on in your life. Maybe it's uh, a healing in your body. Oh, yeah, because this is the dream, so we got to put this cape on them. And flying in the breeze, got big muscles here. Okay, this is that dream being fulfilled. And, of course, we've got a little tattoo going on here. <laughs> this is that dream being fulfilled, and it's beautiful. It's, it's having the building complete. It's having a healing in that marriage. It's getting that loved one saved. It's, uh, it might be uh, a financial breakthrough. Whatever, it might be getting married. It might be having kids. It might be getting the kids out of the house. It's a dream. And when that happens, it might be finishing high school. It might be that college degree, that education, whatever that dream is. And God has it for you in your life. He gives you a picture of that. And here you are in the present. This is you right now. And I want to talk about being this one team for one dream. Anytime you get more than one person in a room, you've got a team. Your marriage is a team. It's one team. Your, your family is a team. Your, your church, this church, is, is a team. And, and that team has a dream. And so in order to get this one, we'll call it the team, in order to get this one team to the one dream, everybody knows that the shortest distance then between these two points is what? A straight line. All my homeschoolers knew that. It's a straight line. It's getting, and if we're going to fulfill the dream, we've got to get there as fast as possible because Jesus is coming back yesterday. I mean, he's, we've got to get there. And I, I don't know about you, but I was taught, I, I know you probably look up on the platform, you can see I was very athletic. Um, but I've been in the locker rooms. I've been, got the pep talks that we are to pursue our dreams, seize our destiny, right? Anybody? We, we know that we've got this one common goal. We've got to go after it with all this gusto and all this heart, and we need to run over people and step over people and push people aside to get there. This is how the world teaches it. But I find something very interesting in this book is nowhere in this book does it say we chase dreams. This book says we chase God. We're not called dream chasers. We're called God chasers. We chase the God of the dream, not the dream. So today I'm going to talk about why it is that God asks us as one team to pursue his will and his plan so that we can feel, fulfill the one dream. And I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2. It says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you out into the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to see 
what was on the inside, what was in your heart. This tells me something is that God leads us out of a place of the promise into the place called the promise land. The nation of Israel was coming out of Egyptian bondage and God said, hey, I want you to go to the promised land. But how many of you know it would only take them 11 days to go in a straight line from the Red Sea to the Jordan River would have taken them 11 days, but how long did it actually take them? 40 years. Look at your neighbor and say, that's as old as you are. 40 years. And why then does God give us dreams and then realize that it's going to take 40 years? Well, something happens out, out here in this, this void, this place between the dream given and the dream fulfilled. Something happens out here but between when God said, okay, I want you to build the building and the time that you get in the building. It's not just a season of waiting. It's a season of, get this, preparation. It's not just a season of just coasting along and, and sooner or later it's going to happen. No, if you really want to seize it, if you really want it to have its fulfillment and its purpose in your life, you've got to embrace this season right here. This distance, something happens between here and there. And today we're going to talk about what God does in that season because we're all going through it, whether it's in our marriage, our finances, our family. It doesn't matter. We're all going through these things. Okay, so the first thing I want you to realize is, number one, is that this, the dream, is not God's will. And if I'd have learned this a long time ago when God first gave me one big dream, I would have saved myself a whole lot of time and pain and money. It would have been so much better. Instead, I pursued the dream. But the dream is not actually the will of God. Let me say it another way. God's promises, all of God's promises are not God's will. I hope that's, does that shock you? Okay. Yeah, it shocked me. Okay. So go ahead and feel shocked. It needs to shock you because if you get the two mixed up, you'll see in just a few minutes, it creates a whole lot of problems. You see the promises of God in this word, they're not God's will. And then you say, you ask this question, say, then what in the world is then the will of God? Can I, can I draw the will of God for you? Okay. I drew a first service. Just get the tape. Okay. No, I'll draw, I'll draw it for you. Okay. This is what the will of God looks like. Mm. Come on, somebody. Does this feel like high school to you right here? This is, yeah. I'm looking at the young folks over here. This is what, this is what it feels like right here. Just the will of God is not the promise of God. The will of God is this journey. And it just goes like this. This is the backside of the desert right here. Anybody been back on one of these? This is what the will of God looks like. And sometimes the will of God is, boy, I tell you. Mm. 
Y'all know what that is, right? That's footprints in the sand. That's when he carried you right there. I know that touched you. Yes, I know that. There's just little footprints here. But this is, uh, oh, y'all know what this is, right? Uh, you know what that is? That's the bridge over troubled water right there. I mean, we're going there. Okay, so it's just the will of God. Well, that's a, that's a bad curve right there. The will of God is not the promise of God. See, this is God's will. This is God's promise, his dream. The will of God, I'm going to lay, lay the foundation here. The will of God is something that you walk. It's a path. The dream is something that inspires you. The will of God is something that you do. The promise of God inspires you to do it. You can't do a promise. Abraham, right over here, Abraham tried to do a promise that's taken the shortcut, and he birthed an Ishmael. When you try to do God's promises, you, you bypass this thing called the will of God to get there as fast as you can. And in the process, you miss out on everything God wants to do out here in the wilderness. There's different words for this. This is called, uh, this is called the wilderness. Uh, this is called junior high. I'm just kidding. Okay, but you know what I mean. This is the wilderness. This is, oh, this one's real biblical, suffering. We don't like to talk about that. This is process, um, journey. That's journey, trust me. This is a desert. That's what this is. Oh, this one, this will preach right here. This is called worship. You've heard it talk that worship is a lifestyle, right? What kind of lifestyle? A lifestyle of obedience birthed out of a love that we have for God. Worship is a lifestyle of obedience. What kind of lifestyle? It's a lifestyle that walks where God says go. Steps when God says step. Stops when God says stops. Goes left when God says goes left. Go right when God says right. That's what worship is all about. Worship's not an event. Worship's a lifestyle. Worship is the wilderness. Worship was born in the wilderness. This is where altars are created all through here. Altars are made. Sacrifices are made. Worship is born out here so that when you get here, he'll still be your God. So, the will of God is something that you do. The dream is something that actually inspires you to do the will of God. You see, this is how God operates. He always gives us the dream first. <laughs> yeah, because if he'd have told us the will before he told us the dream, come on, somebody. Who would sign up for that? I, I, I learned this, you know, my dad, um, you know, I kind of, I grew up out in the country, okay, and, and, and anybody know where L.A. is? Lower Alabama. Y'all know where that's? And um, I had a lot of friends from UCLA. You know where that is? It's the upper corner of Lower Alabama. Okay. But where I grew up, we had to drive towards town to go hunting. And 
my dad, my dad was a, he was a, he was a army guy. He was, he was rough. He was, he was just an outdoorsman. He was, he loved, he, he loved sweating and working many times with no purpose, but just for work. And he would drag me out and I, we had to mow our yard. Our yard was, was like two or three acres and it was pine trees and those things are cursed. I'm telling you. And because they drop pine straw and it's just terrible. And, and I remember growing up, I had to mow my own yard. So I, I said, Hey, when I grow up and I have boys, they're going to mow the yard because I'm paying my dad back. <laughs> but I know that it's going to build character in my boys. I want them to learn how to sweat. So when they were younger, we, we, we moved into, obviously, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex here, and we didn't have acreage. We had a small yard, and everybody has you know, the crew that comes out on Fridays, and they get out, and they jump out of the truck, and, go, burr, 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 and they jump back in. They're gone, and it just looks immaculate. <laughs> I mean, so easy, but I thought, no, we're going to buy us a lawnmower. Uh, not even self-propelled. I mean, make them push it. And, and we, we're going to get our own weed eater. And so they hate mowing the yard, especially in the summertime. And one summer morning, they were sitting there on Saturday watching something on television, playing some games or something. I came in and I said, boys, and I learned this from God, by the way. I said, you know what we're going to do today? We're going to the batting cages. We're going to hit some balls. And they're like, oh, dad. And then I said, after that, we're going to go, we're going to go to the DQ. That's right. Come on, somebody. Yes. And I mean, they jump up on the couch. Dad is great. Yeah. And then I said those words we've all heard before. But first. But first, we got to mow the yard. And you, you know, of course, they're calculating cost analysis here. Is this going to be worth it? But they're out there mowing the yard and their skin's leaking. <laughs> and they're sweating. They're not thinking about how hot it is. They're not thinking about the dust. They're not thinking about all that. What are they thinking about? That's right. They're thinking about hitting the balls and little ice cream. That's what, see, that's how God works. He, get, he tells us the dream and then he shows us his will. Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. But first, <laughs> Joseph, poster child. Joseph, you, everybody's going to bow down. You're going to be a great ruler and a great leader. But first, Joshua, Moses, you're going to be a, a great deliverer. But first, spend 40 years on the backside of a desert. Go over to the New Testament. It's all in the New Testament too. Paul, you're going to be the great apostle the great apostle Paul, but first seven years building tents on the backside of a desert. Oh, I got one for you. How about this one? Jesus, the lamb slain before the creation of the world, has come to set us free. But first, you're going to spend 30 years in obscurity, 30 years on the backside of a desert where no one knows your name. You're going to be in process for 30 years to prepare you for a three-year ministry. Let that sink in. And we wonder where God is after three weeks. Can I tell you where you're at right now if you're miserable? You're in the will of God. I found myself on this journey. Uh, and there's a big picture here. I was in 1988. God spoke to me and said, you're going to be a a worship pastor and you're going to write songs and you're going to play the piano and you're going to do all these amazing things. 
But he didn't tell me his will. I had to walk in it. There was a but first. The but first was you're going to have to go to school. You're going to have to go to, and not music school, pharmacy school. I want to be a drug dealer. <laughs> Legal. Legal drug dealer. And so here I am at Shan's Hospital at the University of Florida, sitting there in a the parking lot listening to worship music, crying my eyes out, going, God, where are you? This doesn't look like my dream because many times the dream is going in the opposite, that will is going in the opposite direction as the dream. And God said, no, I want you to, the will of God is something that you do. The promise of God is something that inspires you to do it. So if you're in this room today and you've got a dream in your heart, maybe you've got a promise that God gave you 20 years ago or 20 minutes ago, it doesn't matter. You're walking in a process to get there. As a matter of fact, I'll say it this way. By the way, they didn't get this first service. But listen, this is good. The bigger the dream, the greater the process. And the reason why is because something happens out here in this wilderness journey, process, experience. Something happens out here that prepares us for this. And if we bypass this and get on the fast track to get there, we're not going to have the character to hold us when we do get there. This will actually destroy you. Some of you wonder why your bank account looks like it looks. And you wonder, why is that person blessed and that person blessed? I don't have enough money to even hardly pay my well. Maybe God can't trust you with that money yet. Maybe he realizes that if you got the dream, it would destroy you. I know. That was good preaching right there. But there are no shortcuts to the dream. You see, a lot of times when the road gets tough, like right in here, it got a little bumpy. We want to get back up here. Or maybe we're in the process here. You know what this is all about. This is you circling a mountain so many times that you become a tour guide. <laughs> Wilderness tour guide. We've been here before. Anybody ever said that? Man, this is the same thing. Man, that other boss, I have the same problem with this boss. Come on, somebody. And so what we try to do is we try to change our circumstance to look like our dream. We change bosses, change husbands. We change wives. We go get a new set of parents. I don't know if that's possible. I know my kids have wanted to. But we try to change our circumstances to look like our promise when all along God is trying to change our heart. So the reason God gave you a picture of the future is so you could see what you look like in the future. But there's a thing that's different. See, you look different here than you look here. Is that, that's not rocket science. Genesis Metro is going to look different at El Dorado Church, at El Dorado. It's not going to be the same. Hey, by the way, if you want it to be the same, you're in big trouble. If you want it to be the same, if you want it to stay the same, you're, I think you're in the wrong church because it's going to grow. It's going to have more and more of a kingdom impact. It looks a whole lot different. Therefore, something has to change, and you're in process right now, so God is building something on the inside of you so when you get there, you can handle it. You're not building a museum. You're building a hospital. You're not building a place where you're just going to go and everything's going to be perfect. As a matter of fact, it's going to get harder. It's going to be harder. Why is it going to be harder? You're going to have to serve more. You're going to have to be one team. 
to fulfill the dream that God has for you and the kingdom of God. But something has to change. The bigger the dream, the greater the process. Just ask David. Paul didn't, see, see um, Saul, he didn't go through process to get to his. And look what happened to him. But we try to bypass it because we like shortcuts. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4 says it like this. Not only so, but we rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. And it says, in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Not for them, in them. That's a preposition that denotes position. You, you praise and rejoice in the situation, not for it, in it. And while you're in it and you're rejoicing, look what happens. Because we know that the process, suffering, produces something. It has a byproduct. And it, that byproduct is patience. Patience. And patience then has a byproduct. By the way, the, the word patience is in there because this is not a microwave. It's a crock pot. <laughs> so it's, it's not an air fryer. Come on, somebody. This is a bad, this is a crock pot. And I would not be here if it were not for crock pots. I'm just telling you right now. My mom knew how to use one. My wife is a master of crock pots. It's, I love crock pots. Because it simmers days and and it's, it's amazing what happened. But see, we want microwaves. Our generation wants it quick. We want a microwave. And God says, no, you, you, need, to, uh, you need to marinate a little bit. Something's got to get on the inside. Something's got to develop. That's why this is about patience. Not about waiting. It's not about waiting. It's about patience. The difference between waiting and patience is, is patience doesn't begin until you're irritated. Waiting is good, man. It's just like, yeah, I'm just waiting on the bus. Yeah, I'm just waiting on that thing to come in. But when it doesn't come in, you have to have patience. You're just waiting in line until the person in front of you decides to pay with cash. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, people. Chick-fil-A has an app. Come on. I've been in line for like three minutes. Get some of this Christian chicken. Some of them fries made with essential oils. You know what I'm talking about. Get me some sanctified chicken right here now. I don't want to wait for it. But patience doesn't begin until you're irritated. So what happens? What does patience produce? Patience has a byproduct, and it's called character, which I like to call, which the Bible also calls Christ-likeness. See, everybody wants to be like Jesus, but nobody wants to walk like Jesus. I, by the way, I've searched this Bible through and through to try to find out how we become more Christ-like, and I, here's what I found out, is there's no way to get more Christ-likeness at an altar. You can't get Christ-likeness through the laying on of hands. And have it imparted. Take it, more Christ like us. Doesn't happen that way. The only way the Bible talks about we get Christ likeness is we got to go through some pain. Hmm. Anybody like pain? Anybody just love pain? I mean, it's just like, I mean, can you imagine that prayer? Say, God, I want to be more like Jesus. So, God, things are going too well right now for me. Would you please bring some pain into my life? Because I realize that pain is the only way I become more like Jesus. And hey, I want to be more like Jesus because I sang it last last week at church. 
Come on, somebody. Be careful what you sing. Some of y'all are blaming it on the devil. When all along it's God leading you into a place of pure dependency upon him. Come on now. Go ahead. Okay, so let's move on. So what is this secret sauce? What is it God de- developing out here in this place? And here it is right here. All of this results in this thing called humility. You say, son, that's a hard left turn. No, it's not. When you, when you understand this verse out of, and I'm just going to read it out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. simply says it this way. Children of Israel, I've led you in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to see what's in your heart. Let me say it again. I've led you in the wilderness. Who leads? God. See, everybody wants to be led by God's Spirit until they find out where He's leading. We wake up, say, Holy Spirit, lead me today. Well, sometimes the Holy Spirit might lead you into a wilderness. And everybody wants to follow him until they find out where he's leading. So God brings us into these desert places, these wildernesses, these journeys. When we dis- you decided, okay, we're going to build that building, what you didn't realize you were signing up for is the Holy Spirit was then leading you on a journey that was going to create this on the inside of you so that when you get here, you can handle it. And the the secret sauce, the key ingredient there is this word called humility. Everybody say humility. Humility, though, uh, an interesting thing about humility is I've never heard a message. I've been in church 35, 40 years of my life. I've never heard a message strictly on humility. I've heard it mentioned, but I've never heard a series, a sermon series. I've never heard a message. This is humility. As a matter of fact, humility just has always just kind of been thrown in there with all the other virtues, goodness and all that stuff, you know, just kind of thrown in there. It's, oh, you got to be humble. It's thinking less of yourself and more of others. And, and, and yet humility seems to have gotten lost. And I, And something on the inside of me, as I was reading the Word of God in Philippians 2, when I read about the humility of Christ, I realized there was something more to humility. Because here's the thing I found, was that humility is not mentioned, don't miss this, humility is not mentioned in the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kind of good, and gentle, faith, self-control. It's not even mentioned in there. And here's what I came to realize, is that humility is not a fruit of the Spirit. It is the root of the Spirit. Humility is not mentioned in the fruits of the Spirit because it's not a fruit. Humility does not come and bear itself on your tree. Humility is actually the root or the soil that all virtues grow in. I I didn't make this up. I actually read this. It's from Jonathan Edwards from the 1700s. He wrote, Humility is the great and most essential thing in true religion. The whole frame of the gospel." Not just parts of it, the whole frame of the gospel and everything appertaining to the new covenant and all of God's dispensations towards us, fallen man, are calculated to bring to pass this thing called humility in the hearts of men. And they that are destitute have no true religion. It's important. It was important to our church fathers. It's important to us that humility is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's actually the root of the Spirit. 
Humility is the soil that all virtues of Christ get their likeness. And let me say it another way. You can't love without humility. You can't have joy in, 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 the, in the suffering unless there's humility. You can't have true peace without humility. Humility is not just a fruit. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. It is the root of the Spirit. Now, you're asking yourself this question. I ask myself this question as I began to study this. But then, God, what is humility? What is it? And I saw a lot of great definitions, and all of them are good, and they, they point to the definition, but they never quite satisfied me with their definition. It, it never quite, I, I didn't grasp it and understand it. And then one day I'm, I'm reading through the Bible, and I had set out that year to read the Bible in one year. How many of you set out to do that? Anybody set out? Okay. Two of you. Three of you. How many of you just said, okay. So you've set out. I, I didn't say finished. You just set out. Set out to read the Bible, and I was in, um, it was November that year, and it, I was in the book of Numbers. <laughs> Don't judge me, okay? <laughs> I was behind, and I calculated I needed 63 chapters a day to get through to the end of the year, okay? <laughs> and so I'm flying, I'm, I'm speed reading, I'm, I'm going as fast as I can reading through my Bible, and I was in the NIV version that year, and I'm flying through, and I come across this verse in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, and it says, Now Moses was very humble, more humble than any person on earth. And I kept on reading. The Holy Spirit said, Stop. And I said, Holy Spirit, 63 chapters. We don't have time for inspiration. I'm just going to get this, okay? we got to get that. He said, no, I want you to read again. Now, Moses was more humble, very humble, more humble than any person on the earth. I kept reading. He said, no, no, stop. Read it again. I read it again and again and again. I said, Holy Spirit, what are you trying to tell me? He said, in that verse is the definition of humility. Now he had my attention. In that verse is the def true definition, the biblical definition of humility. And by the way, I found it all through the Bible since then. It's there. And I said, I don't see it, Holy Spirit. How is this a definition of humility? Humility. He said, well, who wrote it? Y'all know who wrote it? Moses. <laughs> Read it again. Now, Moses. Can you imagine him writing his name? I am the most humble man on the earth. Me, right here. Just Google me. My picture comes up. First 10 hits page right here. Google humility right here. Just this is humility wrapped up right here. I am the humble stumbling block right here. I thought to myself, that's the most arrogant statement in the entire Bible. Can you imagine that? How is he able to write this? I asked the Holy Spirit. I said, this seems arrogant. This seems prideful. It, Obviously, I didn't understand humility, and his answer changed my life. It changed the way I read this Bible. It changed the way I, I was a father to my kids, a husband to my wife. It changed my ministry. It changed everything. When he shared this with me, I asked, how was he able to do that? And the simple answer is this. It's because he was. You're like, that don't help me. What do you mean he was? Let me say it another way. He knew who he was. You see, the true definition of humility is when you realize who you are. 
Not who, not what people think about you, not who you want to be, not what your Facebook or your Instagram or your TikTok says you are, but who you really are. Come on, somebody. It's who you are in the dark. It's who you are. It's not the facsimile of you. It's not your dream. It's not what you think. You're. It's not who you're becoming. It's who the Word of God right here says that you are. Humility comes when we understand who God says we really are. I didn't say how good we are, but who we really, really are. There's some good in there. There's a whole lot of other stuff. When you come to the reality, you can't even get saved without it being humble. You don't realize you can't even get saved without even realizing that you need a Savior. You realize what? You're a sinner that needs a Savior. You realize who you are. And James chapter 4 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's in that moment he gives you this grace, and by grace we've been saved. But you can't even get saved unless you know you need to be saved. Humility, that's what it is. And I thought, boy, God just showed me what true humility is. I mean, I'm, I'm just, this is awesome. He's never told anybody this. I'm going to get me, I'm going on a humble book tour. I'm going to write a book on humility. I'm going to get this bus and write the word humble on the side of it and just drive around and just preach, talk about him. You know, I thought, so I started studying it. And then I read about some guy who lived back in the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. And he said this, humility is to make the right estimate of yourself. And I realized that this was not just a truth. This was a foundational truth for us, the church, the kingdom of God. Well, if you understand then that humility is knowing who you are, then what is false humility? What is pride? Pride is when you have a false idea of who you are. Pride is like the kryptonite. Pride is having a false idea of who you are. In other words, you create an image of who you are, and you say, that's who I am, and then you try to live up to it. Are you here? Changing your circumstances and situations to look like that. Are you here? So pride is when you have a false idea of who you are. Pride, then, is the soil that all sin grows in. I go into detail in the book about this, but understand this. Pride in and of itself is not the sin that caused the fall of Lucifer. It actually didn't cause the fall. Pride was already in Lucifer before he fell. Pride brought about his destruction. He thought he was like God. And that led to his rebellion. Pride is the soil that produces all of the sin. I'm not the first to say this. There was an early church father called Augustine, and he said it like this. Humility is the soil which all virtues grow, and pride the soil that produces the vices. So you say, okay, Pastor Sion, I get it. I understand then that this whole process right here is producing humility. Deuteronomy chapter 8 he led me into the wilderness 40 years to humble me and test me to see what was in my heart. Humility is birthed out here. How, how, do we, how do we do this? How do we walk in it? I'm going to give you the key. It's very, very simple. And Jesus actually gave you the key in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He said this, take my yoke on you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Everybody say learn from Jesus. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. We just got to learn from Jesus. The, only, the second person in the entire Bible who's, who claimed their own humility was Jesus. 
Let me read a verse of scripture for you. It was the one that really started my whole study on, on humility it was Philippians chapter 2. I love Philippians. I flip over Philippians. It's, I just love this book. Okay. It says this in chapter 2, verse 5. It says, you have, must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to, be, to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And then when he appeared in human form, watch this, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Can I make a statement here? I've always taught that love is what brought Jesus down. Love didn't bring Jesus down. Humility did. It just said it right there. Humility. He understood who he really was. And yet we look at Jesus and we think that when Jesus was born as a baby and when they put him down in the cradle in the manger that he had this, you know, he was just a little baby body, but he had a Christ brain in him. Anybody ever think about this? And he was just like, he was like this Messiah, Jesus, King of the universe stuck in a baby body. <laughs> but, but think about this. He became human, he humbled himself, became human. How many of you ever held a baby? Anybody ever held one? Okay, yeah, two of you, a bunch of you, okay. I, I, I've held our children, our babies, and I've, I know you don't have thoughts like this, but I did. I just looked at them and I thought, man, they're stupid. <laughs> this baby doesn't know anything about fishing, football, nothing. I hang back to mom, it's like, well, hey, when they, when they understand these things and they can throw the ball, let's talk, okay? No, it's not like that. But, I, but how many of you know, when a baby's born, their brain is wiped clear. Jesus was born the same way. He had the same brain you and I have. He didn't have this download. He didn't have the entire Pentateuch all right up in his brain. And he was just kind of stuck in his little baby body, you know. You know, she'd lay him outside and, you know, he'd float on the water. <laughs> Jesus had to grow up, spend 30 years preparing for a three-year ministry. What was Jesus doing? Getting to know who he was. Right here, and we're closing with this, and my, this is a process. Jesus, right here, Jordan River, 30 years of age. His cousin John the Baptist is baptizing. Jesus goes out. He goes under the water. He comes back up. He's baptized. And then a Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon him, and there are words from heaven that say what? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Think about this. God had been silent for 30 years, and the first words that we have of the Lord speaking over his son were words of, get this, words of affirmation, not proclamation. They weren't orders or edicts or commands. They were affirmation. The most important thing that you can have in the dream is you got to know who you are. You're a child of God. Jesus spent 30 years getting to that point. And by the way, it wasn't over. He walked out of the Jordan River and he went right in. Luke chapter 4 verse 1 said he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he fasted and prayed for 40 days. And then somebody showed up, right? Revival happens right after we fast and pray. Anybody agree? The devil shows up. <laughs> yeah, sometimes when we think when we fast and pray, God's going to show up, but sometimes the enemy shows up. Are, are, is this okay? 
This is to help you because you understand now Jesus is in the wilderness and the first thing out of the devil's mouth are these words, if you are the son of God. The enemy was challenging Jesus at the very point that he got the first Adam. Thinking I got the first Adam, I can get the second one in the same way. No new scheme. Oh, if you eat that, God will know you'll be like him. They were already like God. And here was Jesus. The temptation, the first one, the second one. If you are the son of God, turn these stone to bread. If you are the son of God, go up to the temple, jump. All of these things. The third one, by the way, is interesting. It's about worship. Bow down to me, and I'll give you all of this. But Jesus quoted... With the very thing that you and I get our identity from, it is written. It's written. It is written. It is written. So Jesus wasn't prepared. He had to get prepared for this three-year ministry. He had to have an unshakable identity to fulfill the will of God and the promise that God had for his life. He had to have an unshakable identity. And I'm closing with this statement because you've got to hear this. Genesis, Metro, you got to hear this. You have to have an unshakable identity. As a church, as a team, you got to have it. As a marriage, you have to have an unshakable identity. What God is doing in your marriages right now is he's creating, he's getting to know. Your wife, husbands, is the best mirror that God has reflecting your true identity. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Wives, the husbands are the same way. That's why God put us together. The flesh shall become one. Because God wants you to realize who you really are. Last thing I'll end with was Jesus stood before Caiaphas, the priest, the high priest, being questioned, never answering, until Caiaphas looked at him and said, I adjure you. Are you Christ, the son of the living God? And Jesus said, you've said it. And Caiaphas tore his robes, and from that point on, Jesus went to Golgotha. From that moment, Jesus did not die because he healed on the Sabbath. He didn't die because he turned water to wine. He didn't die because he walked on the water. He wasn't crucified because he healed the lame. Jesus died for his identity. He humbled himself. He knew exactly who he was. So today, I'll just, every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, Holy Spirit, what are, what are you saying and speaking to us today? Where are we on our journey, Lord, we ask? What are you saying to us? As I know, Lord, you have us on a pathway to fulfill many dreams in our lives and in our hearts. And we want to fulfill those dreams and we want to walk in the will of God and not to pursue the dream today, God. I pray that that you would reveal to every person sitting here the same way you did it to your son Jesus through this word, through their intimate relationship with you, prayer, and through their worship and adoration of you in their worship. Reveal yourself to them. I pray also a blessing upon this church and this family and the dream that you have for them I pray that, Lord, you prepare this team, this family to take dominion and to fulfill everything that you've called them to fulfill 
in this place. In the name of Jesus, amen.